You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's just gone uh, 8 p.m. I'm Alameen Templeton. You're tuned in to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. This is Current Affairs, and in tonight's show, we'll be looking at ongoing peace negotiations and um, uh, strategizing behind the lines uh, by uh, Hamas and uh, Fatah ahead of a possible meeting in Moscow. Actually, the ex- exact timing of that meeting is still remains unclear. It may well have uh, been happening today. It may have happened yesterday, and it may be happening tomorrow. Uh, various um, <clears throat> different uh, versions uh, coming out uh, across the news wires today and on social media. Uh, having to do a bit of a, a patchwork story and putting a whole lot of different sources together to find out what's happening with one story. And at the same time, America is still trying to take stock of a United States service member, a pilot from the Air Force, Aaron Bushnell, setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Um, what does all that mean? Uh, can it make a difference to negotiations uh, that are going on? Can it make a difference to America if it's happened to, uh, to accept uh, 15,000 dead Palestinian babies? Why would America worry about um, one of its own service members passing away? Um, we will be having a look at what Hamas and uh, Fatah have had to say about uh, various uh, negotiations that have been happening as well as preparations for for after Gaza. Is there such a thing, or after the genocide? Um, so yes, uh, many, many um, issues and concerns to get through today. Uh, so it's, it's, quite, it's quite unclear at the moment as to exactly why the Palestinian Authority uh, government resigned. We'll be having a look at that and uh, what it means does it mean does it mean the end of Fatah? Will Fatah uh, still be existent uh, in in a new Palestinian state going forward? Is there room for them? Will Israeli will Israel allow it? Is that the final determinant? Um, it was it's quite funny, you know. On the actual uh, day, <clears throat> on the on the Saturday morning uh, that October seven happened. And immediately, Benjamin Netanyahu, the crime monster of Israel, uh, was threatening that uh, we're going to have all-out war and we will destroy Hamas. And this operation will not stop until Hamas is completely and absolutely eradicated, deracinated, pulled up by the roots from Gaza, he said. So now, uh, one of my criticisms uh, about... uh, Islamic leadership and so on is is our tendency to to create corporations just like the United States has been doing, uh, just like um, the Kufar do. We create a corporation if we want to to get organized, if we want to mobilize, we create a corporation. But a corporation is an artificial entity that doesn't exist at all. So I thought to myself, well, why don't the guys in Fatah? I mean, uh, why don't the guys in Hamas then um, just uh, uh, do the coup de gras on Hamas and then uh, form another little organization and call themselves by a different name? There, you killed Hamas. Well done. Now we've got um, um, Fatih. Now we've got Fatih party, the, the, the conqueror party. Uh, why don't we do something like that? Why, you know, if you want to kill a corporation, it's very easy to kill a corporation. You just go to the... Um, to the registrar of companies and you say we would like to deregister this corporation. That's how you kill Hamas. It's very easy to kill Hamas. You can kill Hamas without shedding uh, one single drop of blood. But of course Hamas is very much more than just uh, the name of a corporation for many Palestinians as we will hear in the show going forward. Um, subsequent to um, Al-Aqsa flood and the genocide happening, uh, support for Hamas has actually increased among Palestinians. So this creates, of course, um, a situation where United States is doing its level best, as it has always been doing ever since Hamas went and won the elections in 2007. 
uh, the United States is trying to pretend that Hamas doesn't exist and that uh, they can create a new preferential partner in its place, someone that white people love, someone white democracy will find acceptable, and uh, they're expecting to find it in the ranks of uh, Fatah. However, it would seem that there is also a new leadership emerging uh, out of Fatah, and uh, they also have their own specific ideas as to uh, what negotiations to, should be taking place, what should be the aim of the negotiations. And all of it is creating a rather confused uh, pockmark landscape. Uh, whether a person of Joe Biden's dubious uh, abilities is going to be able to knit the whole thing together and bring about a credible resolution and a an exit strategy, as they've been demanding from uh, Netanyahu for the last few months, so what is the clearly defined exit strategy regarding the Gaza genocide? Well, it would seem that Netanyahu is keen for, to continue it for as long as possible, because as long as the genocide continues, he can stay out of jail. And it, it's quite sad that it actually does come down to that. Uh, but yes, we'll be looking at that a little bit later on in the show. In the meantime, in cities across the USA yesterday evening, vigils were held to honor the life of a U.S. serviceman by Aaron Bushnell, who died after lighting himself on fire the previous day in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington as an act of protest against the U.S. government's support for Israel's war on Gaza. On Sunday, Bushnell, a 25-year-old member of the U.S. Air Force, filmed himself wearing his military fatigues as he walked in front of the Israeli embassy, firmly declaring why he was there and that he was about to engage in an extreme act of protest. As he walked along, he said, I'm an active duty member of the United States Air Force and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. He then doused himself in flammable liquid and set himself on fire as he uttered his final words, repeatedly yelling, Free Palestine! before collapsing engulfed in flames. As he was burning alive, an officer could be seen aiming his gun at Bushnell, while another could be heard in the background yelling that they needed a fire extinguisher, not a gun. The image of a man pointing a gun at someone in the midst of taking his own life quickly became a symbol of the brutality Bushnell was protesting against and then experienced in his final seconds. Shortly after the news was reported of the young airman's name, identity and background, people were organizing vigils in front of Israeli missions and on street corners. One of the main organizers was the woman-led anti-war group Code Pink. Uh, said a 25-year-old active duty service member who lit himself on fire, um, sorry, uh, Cynthia Papermaster, an organizer with Code Pink, uh, said, I felt like we needed to respond to the self-immolation of Aaron Bushnell in front of the Israeli embassy. He said he could no longer be complicit in genocide and Israel carrying out a genocide with our tax dollars. It was too much for him and it is too much for me too. Unlike many other gatherings in protests of the war in Gaza over the past five months, Monday night's vigils were eerily quiet with the occasional words spoken quietly, often through tears. Said Tarnit Abbott, a union activist, fighting back tears. His act of self-immolation yesterday, yesterday is very hard to face. Every time I think about it, my entire body comes out in chills. And I understand that his act is an act of heroism and comes from the deep wound that being complicit in genocide leaves on all of us. And that's why he did this act that is horrific. I'm here to honor him and to honor his sacrifice. Mourners left, cow, left flowers and candles and wrote in chalk on the sidewalks, many expression, expressing their admiration for Bushnell's final act of protest, while condemning the U.S. government for its support for Israel's war, which has caused more than 100,000 casualties, including 30,000 Palestinian deaths. In front of the Israeli consulate in San Francisco, messages in chalk included Bushnell's own words from his final act, as well as a widely circulated social media post, his last on Facebook, in which he wrote, Many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery, or the Jim Crow South, or apartheid, 
What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now. Some were already reacting to what they expected would be a narrative of Bushnell having a mental illness as a cause of his self-immolation, with one message reading, sane man in an insane world. Another person referred to his military service writing, this is the only time I've said thank you for your service. As a small crowd of around two dozen were gathered around the makeshift memorial, Julian Bermudez, himself a military veteran who served in the U.S. Army, asked if he could do push-ups in front of Bushnell's picture as a symbol of showing respect to a superior in the military. After finishing, he was applauded by the crowd. <clears throat> as someone who went through wartime basic training but wasn't sent abroad, he says he and others like him struggled with having a sense of purpose. Finding a purpose is something I've been struggling with as a veteran. I know they're struggling to be, believe in something and being, part, and being part of something that's oppressing. That's why I had to leave. As much as I loved the people I was working with, I just didn't like what I was working for. So I came here mostly because I could have been, this could have been me. I see myself in Bushnell. Another writer asks, <clears throat> for year, four years ago in 2018, after returning from a Veterans for Peace trip to Vietnam, I wrote an article called Why Would Anyone Kill Oneself in an Attempt to Stop a War? Now, four years later, in the past three months, two people in the United States have taken or risked taking their own lives in an attempt to change U.S. policies on Palestine and to call for a ceasefire and stop U.S. funding to the state of Israel that would be used to kill in the Israeli genocide on Gaza. An unyet unidentified woman, wrapped in a Palestinian flag, set herself on fire in front of the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, Georgia, on December 21 last year. Three months later, authorities have yet to release the name of the woman. Her condition was unknown as of mid-December. <clears throat> this week, Sunday, February 25, active-duty U.S. Air Force member Aaron Bushnell set himself on fire at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., while he was shouting, Free Palestine and stop the genocide. He died from his injuries. As I mentioned in the article in 2018, many in the U.S. admire young men and women who joined the military and profess to be willing to give up their lives for whatever the U.S. politicians or government decide is best for another country. Freedom and democracy for those who don't have the U.S. version of it, or overthrowing self-rule that is not compatible with the U.S. administration's view. Actual U.S. national security seldom has anything to do with U.S. invasions and occupations. But what about a private citizen giving up his or her life to stop the politicians or government from deciding what is best for other countries? Could a mere citizen be so concerned about politicians or government's actions that she or he is willing to die to bring public attention to those actions? One well-known and several little-known actions of private citizens from five decades ago provide us with answers. As American soldiers were killing Vietnamese, <clears throat> there were American citizens who ended, up, who ended their own lives in order to bring the end to the terror of invasion and occupation. While on a Veterans for Peace trip to Vietnam in 2014 and on other delegation trips around the country, we saw the iconic photo of a well-known Buddhist monk, Thich Quan Don Duc, who set himself on fire in June 1963 on a busy street in Saigon to protest the Diem regime's crackdown on Buddhists during the early days of the American War. The photo is seared into our collective memories. The photos show hundreds of monks surrounding the square to keep the police out so that Quang Dok could complete his sacrifice. The self-immolation became a turning point in the Buddhist crisis and a pivotal act in the collapse of the Diem regime in the early days of the war. But did you know that several Americans also set themselves on fire to attempt to end the U.S. military actions during those turbulent war years? How effective were they? If they were effective, then could Bushnell's act be, uh, be more than just uh, a self-serving act? If you want to sp speak about it cruelly, he set himself on fire. Now he's dead. Now it's over. Is that the end of it? It may seem so. And, and, it, and it may also have seemed so in the 1960s. But as people uh, looked back on events, it turned out that in actual fact, those 
isolated acts. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to um, suggest or, or try and encourage people to go out and kill themselves. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Nabi Karim sallallahu alaihi has made clear that a Muslim who kills himself, Allah Ta'ala will not even look at him. So don't. Don't go and kill yourself. Not like this. Well, Allah Ta'ala, we don't know how Allah Ta'ala will uh, look at Aaron Bushnell and what was going on in Aaron Bushnell's mind. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is it a, is it a, a useless act? Did it have no meaning other than beyond the person himself and a few photographers who made money out of selling the photographs? It turns out that in actual fact, some of these acts have had far more profound consequences than many people realized at the time. On 2014, <clears throat> oh wait, no wait. What distinguished these Americans who killed themselves to the Vietnamese was that as American soldiers were killing Vietnamese, there were American citizens who ended their own lives in order to bring the terror of invasion and occupation for Vietnamese citizens to the American public through the horror of their own deaths. Now, one point made here is that these people are still remembered. A bit like Rachel Corey. While she didn't commit suicide, she was killed by an Israeli bulldozer. But very much in the same kind of light. You see how the Palestinians have warmed to Rachel Corey and they keep her memory. I think Aaron Bushnell is going to become uh, is going to occupy a similar place in the hearts of Palestinians, and I think Allah Taala does value the hearts of Palestinians today, probably more than anyone else's hearts in the world. The first person in the United States during the Vietnam War to die of self-immolation in opposition to the war was eighty-year, eighty-two-year-old Quaker Alice Hertz, who lived in Detroit, Michigan. She set herself on fire in a Detroit street on March 16, 1965. Before she died of her burns 10 days later, she said she set herself on fire to protest the arms race and a president used in his high office to wipe out small nations. Six months later, on November 2, 1965, Norman Morrison, a 31-year-old Quaker from Baltimore, a father of three young children, died of self-immolation at the Pentagon. Morrison felt that traditional protests against the war had done little to end the war and decided that setting himself on fire at the Pentagon might mobilize enough people to force the United States government to abandon its involvement in Vietnam. Morrison's choice to self-immolate was particularly symbolic in that it followed President Lyndon Johnson's controversial decision to authorize the use of napalm in Vietnam. Napalm is a burning gel that sticks to the skin and melts the flesh. Apparently unbeknown to Morrison, he chose to set himself on fire beneath the Pentagon window of the then Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. Thirty years later, in his 1995 memoir, In Retrospect to the Tragedy and Lessons of Vietnam, McNamara remembered Morrison's death, and he, 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 he described it thus. Anti-war protests had been sporadic and limited up to this time and had not compelled attention. Then came the afternoon of November 2, 1965. At twilight that day, a young Quaker named Norman R. Morrison, father of three and an officer of the Stony Run Friends Meeting in Baltimore, burned himself to death within 40 feet of my Pentagon window. Morrison's death was a tragedy not only for his family, but also for me and the country. It was an outcry against the killing that was destroying the lives of so many Vietnamese and American youth. But this is where it really bit. McNamara says, I reacted to the horror of his action by bottling up my emotions and avoided talking about them with anyone, even with my family. I knew and Marge, my wife, and our three children shared many of Morrison's feelings about the war. And I believed I understood and shared some of his thoughts. The episode created tension at home, but only deepened as the criticism of the war continued to grow. So it did. It had an effect it had an effect and remembered it all the way into his old age. Before his, his memoir in retrospect was published, in a 1992 article in Newsweek, McNamara listed people with or events that had had an impact on his questioning of the war. <clears throat> One of those events McNamara identified as the death of a young Quaker. 
One week after Norman Morrison's death, Roger Laporte, 22, a Catholic worker, became the third war protester to take his own life. He died of burn, suffered through self-immolation on November 9, 1965, at the United Nations Plaza in New York City. He left a note that read, I'm against the war, all wars. I did this as a religious act. The three protest deaths in 1965 mobilized the anti-war community to begin weekly vigils at the White House in Congress. And every week, <clears throat> Quakers were arrested on the steps of the Capitol as they read the names of the American dead, according to David Hartzog, one of the delegates from the trip. Hartzog, who participated in anti-war vigils 50 years earlier, described how they convinced some members of Congress to join them. Two years later, in October 15, 1967, Florence Beaumont, a 56-year-old Unitarian mother of two, set herself on fire in front of the Federal Building in Los Angeles. A Unitarian is a Christian who doesn't believe Isa salam is God. So they only believe in one God. Uh, her husband George later said, Florence had a deep feeling against the slaughter in Vietnam. She was a perfectly normal, dedicated person and felt she had to do this just like those who burned themselves in Vietnam. The barbarous napalm that burns the bodies of Vietnamese children had seared the souls of all who, like Florence Beaumont, did not have ice cold water for blood, who have ice water for blood and stones for hearts. The match that Florence used to touch off her gasoline-soaked clothing has lighted a fire that will not go out, ever. A fire under us, complacent, smug, fat cat, so damn secure in our ivory towers, 9,000 miles from exploding napalm. And that, we are sure, is the purpose of her act. Um, yeah, yeah, I could go on, but uh, I think really uh, the, the point needs to be made that these, these acts can, in actual fact, bring about a change. Um, but as I say, I'm not now trying to persuade or encourage people to go and kill themselves. Do not do so. Do not do so. Allah Ta'ala has his plan for you. Allah Ta'ala has his plan for you and for all of us. So now what of, uh, what of the negotiations? Is there something going to come out of it all? Uh, <clears throat> A member of the Hamas politi political bureau said yesterday that there is going to be an official meeting with Fatah and other Palestinian factions in Moscow because there is no official communication with the Palestinian Authority regarding the plan for the day after the end of the war in Gaza. Hopefully the fact that people are starting to ask these questions indicates that we are actually nearing the end. Rumors of Rafa in the south being the last stronghold of Hamas are false. The resistance exists across the entire Gaza Strip, said Mohammed Nazal, leader of Hamas. Moreover, the movement is fighting a fierce political negotiating battle, no less than the battle that it is waging on the ground. So very clearly, serious things are happening. Moving forward with the negotiation process, he said in a press statement, the goal is to prioritize the interests of the Palestinian people. This means an end to the aggression and provision of relief to the people in the Gaza Strip, most especially in the north. There is no promise to stop the aggression against Gaza yet, he said. The occupation are offering a temporary ceasefire for the exchange of captives, after which it will complete its mili military operation in Rafah. A very interesting article, very interesting, isn't it, that out of all the articles, uh, the one I choose to focus on is one from the Jerusalem Times. Um, well, it may well be that uh, they've got more resources and so on. But nevertheless, uh, I do need to feel a need to say this is from the Jerusalem Times. So um, please bear that in mind as we go forward. According to the Times, the Palestinian Authority is still seeking unity with Hamas and may hold talks with the terror group in Moscow. Uh, according to PA Prime Minister Mohammed Shatir, he said on Sunday that the world needs to stop focusing on the October 7 massacre. Uh, Shatir told the Munich Security Conference, Russia has invited all Palestinian factions who will be meeting on the 26th of this month in Moscow. 
That was yesterday, but so far we haven't heard anything about it, and it looks maybe there's been a delay or something. Uh, but anyway, we're keeping an eye on this story. Uh, he says, we will see if Hamas is ready to come to the ground with us. That's what Shataya said on Sunday. We are ready to engage. If Hamas is not, then that's a different story. We need Palestinian unity, he said, adding that to be part of that unity, Hamas needed to meet certain prerequisites. Now, this is the thing you see. Hamas and uh, widely the Palestinian Authority is seen as corrupt. Um, is Hamas going to be willing to stand down and hand over leadership to the Palestinian Authority? I don't see that happening. I don't see that happening. Uh, whether or not Hamas is going to be willing to accept what uh, Shatir is calling uh, prerequisites remains to be seen. He says, in order for Hamas to become a member of the PLO, can you see Hamas become, applying to become a member of the PLO? Then there has to be prerequisites that Hamas has to accept. They have to accept the political platform of the PLO, an understanding of the issue of resistance, and we're calling for popular resistance and nothing else. In other words, they're not calling for um, armed struggle. What's popular resistance? Now, you see, the interesting thing is that Hamas, as we discussed last week, had already given up the armed struggle before like all the, all the fighting broke out again, and that was caused by Israel. Asked about making common cause with the group that betrayed, well, of course, this is the um, Jerusalem uh, Times speaking, um, asking about uh, common cause with the group that perpetrated the, the massacre on October 7. Shataya said one should not continue focusing on October 7. Hamas has always welcomed Russian reconciliation efforts. Its leaders have repeatedly visited Moscow, which maintains good relations with the group. Hamas and the PA have failed to end the power dispute since 2007. Hamas and the small Islamic Jihad group demand to join the PLO, but say it should be reformed as the two factions reject recognizing Israel or abiding by the PLO commitment towards the signed Oslo peace accords. Shataya avoided questions about the PA making reform sought by the West, despite announcing a comprehensive reform program in late January. It's not about reform. It's not about anything, he said. It's about Palestinians wanting an end to occupation. The reform package, which includes the appointment of a new regional governors, changes in how security forces are recruited, liberalization of the media market and a restructuring of the health sector, come with a call to hold general elections and open them to all factions. Since the outbreak of the war, various Palestinian Authority officials have called for integrating the political wing of Hamas into a future Palestinian government, claiming it is an essential component of Palestinian society. Elections are seen by many in the international community as a key stage in the reform and revival of the PA, a body perceived as corrupt and ineffectual, in order to boost its legitimacy and potentially enable it to take control over the Gaza Strip after the war. A wartime opinion poll, uh, genocide time opinion poll in December, found 88% of Palestinians saying Abbas must resign. At the same time, 44% in the West Bank said they support Hamas. That's up from just 12% in September. In Gaza, the terror group enjoys 42% support, up from 38% three months ago. Shataya said, Palestine is ready. We have the institutions, the capabilities, but our serious problem is we are under occupation. We are under Israeli occupation and we need it to end. Last week, Abbas called on Hamas to make haste in agreeing to a deal with Israel in order to save the Gaza Strip from Israel's military offensive. Uh, he said at the time, uh, we call on Hamas movement to quickly complete a prisoner deal to spare our Palestinian people from the calamity of another catastrophic event with dire consequences, no less dangerous than the Nakba of 1948. It is believed that 130 hostages abducted by Hamas on October 7 remain in Gaza, but not all of them are alive. After 105 civilians were released from Hamas captivity during a week-long truce in late November. Four hostages were released prior to that and three were rescued by troops. The bodies of eight hostages have also been recovered and three hostages were mistakenly killed by the military. 
Mediators have been working for weeks on a deal that would see the remaining hostages released by Hamas in stages in exchange for a truce. Hamas, however, has refused to agree to any deal that does not guarantee an end to the war, not just a ceasefire. While Israel says ending the war before Hamas is defeated is a non-starter. The Palestinian Authority's leaders' remarks last week were praised by National Security Advisor U.S. Jake Sullivan, who said uh, that not enough members of the international community have been directing the courts at Hamas and were exclusively placing the burden on Israel. Well, that's what America's doing. Hamas has to account for itself as well. Hamas is hiding amongst civilians in ways that also put them at risk. And so some of the international communities and questions and pressure should be on Hamas, Sullivan said. Uh, Now, what do Palestinian analysts themselves have to say? Well, uh, according to Al-Mayadeen today, several Palestinian analysts believe the Fatah-led Palestinian Authority is preparing itself to take over the administration of the besieged war-torn coastal enclave the day after Israel ends its bloody war on Gaza. The Palestinian analysts argue that Israel is on the verge of ending its fierce war on the Gaza Strip, but it is looking for an alternative to Hamas to manage Gaza. The new power in Gaza should not be involved in any activities against Israel or even try to threaten its existence in the region, the analysts noted. In a bid to save Gaza from Israeli threats, particularly a direct reoccupation of the enclave, the Palestinian Authority is accelerating preparations to administer Gaza by establishing a technocratic government recognized internationally and by Israel, which will arrange the conditions in the besieged strip. On Monday, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas accepted the resignation of the Palestinian government headed by Mohammed Shatia, issuing a decree assigning him as Prime Minister to conduct business until a new government is formed. During his weekly cabinet meeting held in Ramallah, Shatia said the decision comes in light of the political, security and economic developments related to the Israeli aggression against our people in the Gaza Strip and the unprecedented escalation in the West Bank, including the city of Jerusalem. The next stage and its challenges require new governmental and political arrangements that take into account the new reality in Gaza and the urgent need for a Palestinian consensus based on a national basis, broad participation, unity of ranks, and to extend the authority of the authority over the entire land of Palestine. Things have become clearer now, especially since the radical changes in the PA and the reforms it is implementing come from political arrangements to prepare for the day after the war on Gaza, said Ahmed Awad, who is based in Ramallah. To achieve the suffering, to alleviate the suffering of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and to achieve Palestinian political goals that may lead to the declaration of the State of Palestine and the establishment of an internationally recognized entity, the Palestinian Authority is preparing to take over the administration of Gaza in the next stage, according to Awad. But the PA can only achieve this by rearranging the internal Palestinian House and forming a new government of qualified people, people who are not involved in any military actions to manage Gaza, which needs years of restoration and reconstruction in preparation for holding Palestinian elections, he said. For his part, Talal Okal, a Gaza-based Palestinian analyst, anticipates that Hamas will be integrated into the PLO and that it will also have a share in the next government after waging a fierce war with Israel that managed to inflict heavy losses on the Israeli army. The locals in Gaza need to alleviate the burden of the disaster that is befalling the people of Gaza. In addition, Hamas needs to stop the war and complete the deal to liberate the Palestinian prisoners, but it will not agree to a deal that leads to a temporary truce, even if it is for a few weeks or months, Okal said. Therefore, the United States, which is the main sponsor of Israel, is rushing to reach a temporary ceasefire that may be extended if the negotiations succeed in bridging the gap between Hamas and Israel, Okal added. Currently, the decision is basically up to the U.S. administration, as Netanyahu cannot resist any longer, especially 
especially since the extremists in his government do not stop insulting Biden and his administration. <laughs> As a result, O'Carl believed that reaching a satisfactory deal for both the Israeli and Palestinian parties would not be easy, and it will most likely take more time, but it will happen in the end. However, he stressed the cessation of war, whatever the form of the cessation, does not mean the cessation of the conflict. The difficult questions regarding the next day are many and dangerous. Therefore, O'Connor asserts that it is crucial to stop the war because it constitutes an opportunity for the Palestinians to rebuild their political system without the illusion of excluding anyone, which will further the end of Israel's apartheid regime. He continued that the next stage would be forming a new government of qualified people to restore and rebuild Gaza, prepare for Palestinian elections and implement administrative health and legal reforms within the PA. He considered that this would have significant effects on the Palestinian people and could be an end to the internal division and could block Israel's plans to geographically isolate Gaza, the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem from each other. The Shatia government is the 18th since the founding of the Palestinian Authority in 1994. It was formed in April 2019 by presidential decree and was entrusted with Palestinian reconciliation and preparing for the elections which were subsequently postponed. The government represented a political coalition that included forces from the PLO factions, the Fatah movement, the People, Palestinian People's Party, the Feder Party, and the Palestinian Popular Struggle Front and independent figures. The resignation of the Palestinian government is in anticipation of a comprehensive ceasefire agreement between Hamas and Israel, said Khalil Shaheen, also based in Ramallah. Shaheen added that the resignation of the Shataya government would pave the way for a new government of competent people to extend its control over the occupied West Bank and prepare for the day after the war on Gaza. He explained that the current Palestinian situation needs a competent government to take charge and for there to be international confidence, stressing the need for all Palestinian factions to agree on this before it is too late. The resignation of the Shataya government came ahead of a meeting that brings together all Palestinian factions, including Hamas and Fatah in Moscow, and a Russian invitation in the coming few days. <coughs> Shaheen stressed that the Palestinian factions must be aware of the seriousness of the current stage and the necessity of reaching some formula because the Palestinian people in the besieged Gaza Strip and occupied West Bank are in mortal danger. Um, according to Democracy Now!, a proposed temporary Gaza ceasefire and prisoner exchange appears designed to buy war-battered Gazans relief while enabling Israel and Hamas to claim a success. However, whether Israel or Hamas emerges as the ultimate victor will be determined by whether the truth becomes permanent and the war ends. Negotiated by Qatar, Egypt, the United States, Israel and Hamas, the deal would be whittled down to, to the first day of an earlier three-phase proposal that envisioned three 45-day periods during which a permanent ceasefire would be negotiated. The whittled-down plan suggests that the parties, except for Israel, who is determined to continue the war, hope the truce will create space for a negotiated permanent settlement. Hamas is yet to formally, formally respond to the latest proposal, but a senior official said the atmosphere of optimism does not reflect reality. In other words, Hamas uh, believes that people, that other people on the other side of the table are starting to get ahead of themselves. For his part, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu asserted that if Hamas goes down from its delusional claims and brings them down to earth, we will have progress that all we all want. This weekend, Israel's war cabinet decided to send a delegation to Qatar for further talks. In a nod to Hamas demands, Israel would, under, would under the plan, redeploy but not withdraw its troops from Gaza and allow the return to the northern part of the strip of internally displaced Palestinian women and children. Hamas has insisted on a full Israeli withdrawal and the unrestricted return of Palestinians to their once destroyed homes. 
The plan constitutes an attempt to lower the temperature during Ramadan, um, which is likely to shine a spotlight on Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Masjid, um, and, uh, which has been a flashpoint, uh, fueling emotions across the Muslim world. Uh, Ramadan begins on March 10. Some analysts suggest Hamas's possible willingness to discuss a temporary rather than a permanent ceasefire constitutes a victory for the group's Gaza-based leader, Yahya Sinwar. Mr. Sinwar, who tops Israel's most wanted list, symbolizes Israel's failure to achieve its goals five months into its devastating military campaign. Israel is here to capture or kill any of Hamas's Gaza-based most senior leaders. Israel's recent controversial military focus on Rafah, the densely overpopulated most southern part of Gaza, is driven in part by the belief that Sinwar and other senior figures shelter in underground tunnels in Rafah surrounded by Hamas-held hostages as human shields. Of course, that's the imagination, and we have seen that the Israeli imagination is going nowhere nowadays. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of the fighting is weeks away from completion, not months. If we have a hostage deal, it will be delayed somewhat, but it will happen. It has to be done because total victory is ours and total victory is within reach. Oh boy, you know, when people start talking about total victory, that's when you know that they've uh, wandered off into the, into the Hitler fields of, um, of hyperbole. Uh, so there he is uh, in his Hitlerian fields, walking hand in hand with his uh, ostensible hero, I suppose. Convinced that Israel will not end the war soon on terms that would allow for a credible process to resolve the conflict, uh, Mr. Sinwar, widely viewed as a hardliner within Hamas, reportedly sees a temporary truce as an opportunity to regroup the group's military wing. Moreover, the truce will give Sinwar a tactical success with an exchange of 40 of the 136 Hamas-held hostages and bodies of captives killed during the war for an unspecified number of Palestinians held in prisons. Hamas took some 250 people hostage during its October 7 attack on Israel, more than 100 of whom were released for Palestinians incarcerated in Israel during the truce in November. The exchange ensured that more Israeli hostages have been killed than have so far been freed by Israeli troops. Sinwar may also believe that widespread anti-government protests in Israel and demands that the government prioritize the release of the hostages rather than the war strengthens Hamas's position. In addition, he may be counting on his demand for the release of Palestinians sentenced to life in prison, sparking the fall of Netanyahu's government. His far right-wing coalition partners have threatened to leave the government if the Prime Minister caves into Hamas's demands. The far right initially opposed the November exchange, but ultimately has agreed to it. Sharing with Netanyahu a callous disregard for innocent Palestinian lives, Sinwar has miscalculated if he expects international pressure to disrupt Israel's apparent strategy of, of genocide to create a shock that would lead civilians to put pressure on Hamas. Israel has ignored widespread international condemnation and mild public U.S. criticism. Gazans, despite signs of opposition, have failed to rise up against Hamas, whose popularity on the West Bank and in the Palestinian diaspora has risen considerably. Compounding Israel's failure to achieve its war goals, the Biden administration has asked Israel to stop targeting Hamas's police force that provides security for aid trucks entering Gaza and attempts to restore a semblance of law and order. The administration warned Israel that attacking the police could exacerbate the already dire humanitarian crisis and, walked, and, will, <clears throat> and warned that it could spark a total breakdown of law and order. Police have cracked down on merchants hoarding badly needed goods to drive up prices, but have also seized items in support of Hamas. Particularly, fuel siphoned off from aid trucks entering Gaza is sold on the black market at exorbitant prices. It's a problem that in Gaza's dire circumstances would be prevalent regardless of who controls the police. Complicating Sinwar's calculations and those of Netanyahu is the Saudi-backed, three-pronged U.S. attempt to tie a broader Middle East deal. 
That deal would involve the temporary ceasefire becoming permanent and ending the hostilities, the establishment of a Saudi-Israeli diplomatic relations, and the agreement on a credible pathway towards an independent Palestinian state. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia hope Netanyahu, who is an opportunist who prioritizes his personal and political interests, may be sufficiently seduced by the ability to claim credit for formalizing relations with the Middle East's crown jewel Arab state to risk the breakup of his, of his government and reverse the rejection of a Palestinian state. It remains unclear whether differences between Sinwar and some of Hamas's exile leaders involved in the negotiations to achieve a ceasefire are tactical or strategic <clears throat> when it comes to the group's end game in the war, its potential willingness to embrace a historic compromise and its post-war posture. <clears throat> Hamas negotiators have insisted that the group will only agree to a permanent ceasefire that will end the war. Even so, Sinwar, based in Gaza rather than Doha, the Qatari capital, is the group's ultimate decision-maker. The difference in what drives uh, Mr. Uh, Sinwar and Netanyahu and explains the callousness lies in, in an anecdote recently recalled by Alouf Ben the editor-in-chief of Israel's widely respected Haaretz newspaper. It's not a bad newspaper, I must say. Mr. Ben remembered former Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan's words at the 1956 funeral of an Israeli farmer, brutally murdered by Palestinian militants. Moshe Dayan, was he the one with the, with the eye patch? I think so. Yeah. He said, let us not cast blame on the murderers. For eight years, they have been sitting in the refugee camps in Gaza, and before their eyes, we have been transforming the lands and the villages where they and their fathers dwelt into our estate. Mr. Dayan did not criticize Israeli policy or propose accommodation of the Palestinians. Instead, he acknowledged reality and expressed a willingness to accept the consequences of the Jewish state's policy. He said at the time, let us not be deterred from seeing the loathing that is inflaming and filling the lives of hundreds of thousands of Arabs living around us. This is our life's choice, to be prepared and armed, strong and determined, lest the sword, lest the sword be stricken from our fist and our lives cut down. And Ben concluded from that anecdote that on October 7, 2023, Diane's age-old warning materialized in the bloodiest way possible. Israelis cannot expect stability if they continue to ignore the Palestinians and reject their aspirations, their story, and even their presence. This is the lesson the country should have learned from Diane's age-old warning. <clears throat> it's a lesson Mr. Sinwar has brutally embraced, and Mr. Netanyahu and many Israelis, perhaps even a majority, have yet to grasp. Optimists will argue that a temporary ceasefire will pause, if not halt, the human carnage in Gaza and potentially open the door to an end to the war. A Diane's cynical realism is probably more realistic. Little suggests that a post-Netanyahu Israel would fundamentally be, fundamentally be more willing to accommodate Palestinian aspirations. Worse still, the much-touted two-state solution may prove to be the best of bad options, particularly in the wake of a war that has traumatized Israelis and Palestinians in unprecedented ways. Much like the 19th century experience of Russian Jews, the 1923 Turkish-Greek population exchange, this century's plight of the Rohingya, and the potential depopulation of Gaza, a two-state solution could produce two hostile states rather than two countries seeking to cooperate. Referring to the Indian subcontinent's post-1947 partition, political scientist uh, Manilo Garaziano noted that for the three quarters of a century since then, India and Pakistan have cultivated a hostility punctuated by periodic clashes, terror attacks, and at least four official wars, exploited and exacerbated by the great powers for their own games on the international chessboard. In the Middle East, Graziano argued it would be naive, to say the least, to assume that Israeli Palestinians, who account for about 20% of the Israeli population, or the 20% of Israeli settlers on the West Bank who fall under Palestinian rule, if they choose to stay in a Palestinian state, would be allowed to remain in place over time. 
The tragedy in which Israelis and, Pal and Palestinians are imprisoned today is exacerbated by the fact that the only solution that external ha actors have proposed would simply make their situation worse, plunging them into what philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the state of nature, that is, a permanent war, war of every man against every man. The specter of civil strife raised its head during the 2021 Gaza war with scenes of Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians clashing violently and assaulting each other in Israeli cities, cities previously considered models of coexistence. Far-right members of Netanyahu's cabinet have used the specter of continued strife to justify the rejection of a Palestinian state. Ultra-nationalist Israeli Heritage Minister Amichai Eliyahu a skion of a prominent Sephardic rabbi family, warned in recent days that such a state would demonstrate terror pays and will get you what you want. Further clouding prospects for genuine Israeli-Palestinian peace is the fact that the risk of post-settlement hostility is pervasive, regardless of whether the resolution involves a two-state solution, a confederation or a one-state solution all of which suggests that even a temporary ceasefire that offers Gaza in some respite, the warring parties an opportunity to breathe and potentially enables winds of change to blow, is better than the uninterrupted Gaza carnage for which innocent Palestinians pay the price. Well, with that, we come to the end of our show, other than for noting that a private U.S. lunar lander will cease operations today after landing sideways. That's what the United States call it. The aircraft landed sideways and then fell over. So there you have it. I guess maybe uh, U.S. peace deals and U.S. lunar landers uh, look as though they're going to be saving the same kind of fate because... They're on very weak legs. And with that, we have come to the end of the show. Uh, Jazakamallah. We will be back tomorrow, inshallah, between 8 and 9. Uh, don't miss us. Uh, you can also catch me, you myself, uh, on show again tomorrow afternoon between 12 and 1, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.